Greetings, and welcome to the Thirsty Mage, the podcast looking for the perfect mixology between beer and RPGs. I am David Lloyd, your host and man who only charges his 3DS for Atlas. Tonight's episode is about the new Atlas remake for Radiant Historia, Perfect Chronology. We have with me the busiest man in Nintendo podcasting and two-time short straw drawer, Mr. Casey Gibson. <laughs> well, I don't know about all that, but uh, a pleasure to be here as always. <laughs> it's great to have you again. We really need that designated driver, so... Yep, yep. I hope you have your Aquafina again tonight. Uh, actually, we've got Nirvana, naturally green, and uh, let me let me tell you real quick, don't buy it. Not very good water. <laughs> Sounds good. And we also have a uh, first-time patron at the Thirsty Mage, the owner and reviews editor of Nintendo World Report, Mr. Neil Ronahan. Hey, uh, I'm drinking a Dogfish Head Namaste White, uh, a personal favorite. Um, at least it's it's one of the ones that the the uh, the pharmacy that I buy my beer at down the road from where I live usually always has it in there, and I really enjoy it. So, highly recommend Dogfish Head Namaste or Namaste White. Last week, I was too embarrassed to admit I had forgotten to get some actual good beer, so I was stuck drinking Corona. <laughs> uh, <laughs> however, however, for this podcast, I, I did manage to remember to pick up something good, and uh, I picked up a, a Scotch Ale uh, from a brewery uh, not too far from me, and uh, it's a it's a hearty 10.6% alcohol, so... Uh, Uh-oh. Wow, think... this is going to get a little ripped. Yeah, mine's like, <laughs> yeah, mine's 4.8. Namaste. Namaste's white. Namaste white is basically like the closest I'll get to drinking a Corona-like beer. Um, it's just the kind of thing that like I can I can throw a couple of them back and I'm and I'm not I'm not sloshed. Not like David's gonna be after two. Yeah, yeah. Halfway through, it's just gonna be like you're turning the stand. <laughs> you're a timeline. That's right. Well, podcasting's just like golf. The the drunker you get, the better you play, right? So. <laughs> yeah. If you if you if you're not like, you know, if if you're not on like hole fourteen, uh, peeing off in the bushes with a cigar in your mouth, um, you're doing it then, all wrong. Th- yeah, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> Already dipping into your third sleeve of balls. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So I guess we should let everyone know that uh, tonight we're going to be discussing uh, a lot of topics about Radiant Historia, and obviously there's going to be spoilers. So 10-year-old game, I think we're okay, and honestly, I think even if even when you do hear some of the story, uh, you're still good. The game is great. Just play it anyway. Don't worry about it. Just listen to us. Get some pointers. Go have some fun. So uh, we'll get started. So Radiant Historia was originally released in uh, 2011 in North America on the DS. Uh, at the time, the life cycle of the DS was actually winding down, uh, so not great timing. Uh, which brings us to today, where the remake uh, Radiant Historia Perfect Chronology uh, released uh, on February 13th. Uh, and again, unfortunate timing, uh, with the, the 3DS being overshadowed by the Switch now. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it, it couldn't really be helped, because the director from the original game, uh, Mitsuru Hirata, was working on, or has been working on Tokyo Mirage Sessions uh, until 2016. So this is pretty much the earliest it could come out. But it's still, uh, I know we all love our Switches, but this is a fantastic 3DS game. So really uh, recommend people uh, give it a try because it's, it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, even even what happened to me with Radiant Historia back when it first came out, uh, I believe, I think um, a past patron at this here bar 
James Jones, uh, he reviewed it for Nintendo World Report back in 2011. But I think it came out in February of 2011, which was mere weeks before the 3DS launching. And I think it was even... I think it was like a week or two before Pokemon Black and White. Oh my god. <laughs> so I think I was reviewing Pokemon Black and White, or I mean one of them. Not, it's not like I was playing through both Black and White at the same time. Uh, I So I got this game and like played it for a week or two, and then was playing Pokemon Black and White, and then you know 3DS came out, and I was focused on that. But thankfully, the 3DS's first couple months were very barren. So I had the chance to go back and, and finish up Radiant Historia. But it was just like, it came out alongside another major RPG with way more cachet. And, I mean, at least now, like, it's the only show in town on 3DS. Um, yeah, like, it's the 3DS launch schedule is very humorously empty right now, except for Atlas RPGs. Yeah, they're they're keeping the flood going. Yeah, I know this for me, this was a game I'd heard so much about, um, like I said, probably from, you know, James listening to RFN. And I actually picked it up for the DS on one of those big sales online or something. I think I got it for like, I don't know, like $15, something really, really inexpensive. And I'd been meaning to get around to it. And I actually think it was a couple months ago that we were talking about how we needed to go back and play it and sort of do something similar like this for the DS version, and then not too soon after that point, they announced the 3DS version, and we were like, booyah, perfect. Yeah. Have you played it? Now, David, you said you never played this back on the DS, right? Uh, no, I, I had never played it myself, uh, so this is a brand new experience for me. It, it was fun pretty much off the bat. It was a little, a little bit of getting used to with the grid system, which we'll talk about later, but... The, the grid system was uh, new to me. It was a little different, but as soon as I got the hang of it, the, the game was a lot of fun. And the, Especially when there's so much combat in the game, you want to make sure you're having fun, and, and that was the case. So so the developers behind Radiant Historia, I mean, it's all, it's it's Atlas made this game. Uh, we all know Atlas. They they make your, your personas. And, I don't know, your, your Shin Megami Tensei games. Uh, they work with Nintendo sometimes on Tokyo Mirage sessions and things like Shama Team. Uh, but the development team here was based primarily of Radiata Stories, which was a PS2 RPG. That I mean, the, the name is very similar. Uh, I've I've never played it, so I don't really have that much to go off of with that. But the other half of the team came from Shin Megami Tensei Strange Journey, which... It's funny, because that is also getting a 3DS remake, which is due out mere months from now, and will probably be a future episode of this very show. So for Rowdy Out of Stories, uh, you had Satoshi Takayashiki, who, he was the original concept designer, and he was uh, the the co-director of Radiant Historia. And he pitched the game to Atlas. Uh, I'm not sure if he was still a member of Triace, which those are, I mean, they... They worked on, like, Star Ocean games, and I think they're still around, um, probably still making Star Ocean games that I don't pay attention to anymore. Uh, but Takayashiki pitched the idea to Atlas, and apparently his first pitch was that the main character would be a sword and be a supernatural being, which is preposterous to me. And thankfully, Atlas was like, yo, dude, that's a cool idea, but what if we make the main character human and he can time travel? <laughs> so so a total about face but then that's kind of the direction that the game went in 
And on the Atlas side, uh, the director was Mitsuru Harada, who this was his first time as director. He had, uh, going back, he, he, he worked on a bunch of old Shimigami Tensei games. Like he worked on Nocturne, Digital Devil Saga, uh, Devil Summoner, Strange Journey, and then went on to Radiant Historia. After that, he would work on Shimigami Tensei 4, which is another fantastic 3DS RPG. And then he was the director on Tokyo Mirage Sessions. Uh, so with Radiant Historia, he was, he was the director. And then there was another guy, uh, Hiroshi Kanishi, who reprised his role as character designer from Radio Stories. And he did, uh, he, he made all the character designs here. And I'm relatively certain, correct me if your guys' research goes goes back on this, but I, I, Kanishi came back for the remake and worked on it. But but Taki Yashiki is the one of the core the core minds of Radiant Historia back in the day that did not come back for the remake. Mm-hmm. But Harada seems to drive seems to be the driving force of this game, and and I think that reflects that maybe Harada has a positive outlook. Because it seems like some of the other ideas that people had, like Kaneshi had the idea that there would be two generic soldiers that Stock would start off with that would then be killed later in the game. And then Harada was like, that's a little too dark. And then that's how we got Marco and Rainey. So so that's a thing that happened. I, I get the feeling Harada was the voice of reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he seems like a bright dude, especially uh, talking about Raw Sessions. Real good game. Uh, this is a real good game. And. I also came across the the whole thing that it seems like this Radiant Historia remake was in like was being considered years ago. I think before the development of Tokyo Mirage Sessions, although the only like quote that I could find about it was that just that um, someone at Atlas had or like I guess in some something from Atlas or like some some person made a comment about how uh, on a system that wasn't the 3DS, they were looking into doing a Radiant Historia remake, but then Tokyo Mirage Sessions came up. So I would assume that means that Radiant Historia Perfect Chronology might have been an early pre-production for a Vita version. I guess there's also the really crazy angle that there could have been a remake for Radiant Historia being made for Wii U, but I would assume Vita, because like as much as Radiant Historia Perfect Chronology on 3DS is... Much more fuller of a remake than I expected. Uh, I think I think if you're if you're going to do a remake of this game, I don't think it warrants the full budget of making it a, an entire 3D game. Yeah, and I would have thought too if they finished in if this game released what 2011 we said. So if they were to be you know shifting gears already to a remake that shortly after for the 3DS, you know what I mean, would have been sort of strange. Um, but yeah, the, the Vita makes sense because. You know, uh, a lot of Japanese, you know, RPGs on there really strive and do very well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be surprised if they did do that Vita version in this fanciful alternate reality, which I guess is fitting with the context of the game. I feel like that Vita version probably still would have come to 3DS, like uh, Conception Two, um, mm. also was Vita 3DS. There, there, there's that weird, that weird time period before the Vita fell off the face of the earth, where Atlas was like making games. That would be both Vita and 3DS releases. Well, in the in the research I had done, Harada uh, had been wanting to go back to it for a while. Yeah. And then in talking with Atlas, they, they were interested in it as well because it did have a following in Japan and in the West. Yeah, it sold. So, so even though it came out so late in the DS's life, it sold very well. So... 
I think it's always a question with these Atlas RPGs and that they seem like they're very expansive, uh, generally well-produced games. And how does Atlas continue to stay in business after all these years? And I think that Atlas mitigates risk a lot. So in the case of Radiant Historia, and I think this, like they, they kind of were upfront about it is that they, they knew when Radiant Historia was coming out in America um, that it was very late in the, the DS's life. So they didn't have a high like print run of it. It was very much like, okay, we're going to like cover the pre-orders and a little bit more, and that's what we're going to make. And it's sold out. So there was there was a little while where if you had a copy of Radiant Historia, you could sell that on eBay for a pretty penny. But then Atlas uh, did a second print run of Radiant Historia uh, because the demand was there. And not every Atlas game gets that treatment. Uh, so so that's that's a notch for Radiant Historia being a game with a more loyal following than your average original IP from, from Atlas. They probably would have needed to do a, a third print run if they had gone with that original sword idea, but yeah. Yeah. We would have had like <laughs> sword, swordy McSorderson would have had his own trilogy. It would have been bigger than persona five. Yeah. Could you imagine the alternate uh, timeline? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need to start doing this. We're just like, all right, this is the possible history of this <laughs> video game everyone. series. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I'd imagine the amount of people that own 3DS had a, a large factor in deciding which one to go with. Yeah, and I mean, also, if you're if you if you were starting that remake in 2016, why the hell would you make it for Vita? Yeah, yeah, but why would you make it for Wii U either? Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> they, that was just because they didn't they didn't specify. Well, well, no, well, no, but that, that, that that's the thing is that I, I need to look up that exact quote, but but it was before Tokyo Mirage Sessions. So that means it would have been like like when this this remake was being talked about, it might have been 2013, 2014. A real a real real forward thinking uh, exec over at Atlas that was like, mm, why, why don't we just hold off for a bit and yeah, release it on a, a system that's going to succeed. <laughs> Well, getting into the artistic design of uh, Irradiant Historia, we have Hiroshi Kunishi is the artist who came up with all the characters. And um, he changed his art style for Irradiant Historia, actually, because his previous work was more soft and bright. But Irradiant Historia required more of like a dark and serious uh, feel to it. So he adapted. He'd also worked on games like uh, in the Xenogears uh, saga, Disaster Day of Crisis, which is a, a great game. Um, and he also worked on Xenoblade uh, Chronicles and Chronicles X, as well as Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. So he's been working with Monolith Soft, as we can see there. Um, he enjoys like Celtic and Norse uh, mythology and pulled inspiration for the game from the medieval Europe, which we could definitely see uh, throughout the locations, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. But... Um, what was really cool was that many of the characters were sort of evaluated after being drawn and just sort of seeing how the team reacted to it. So, for instance, uh, Fennel was actually not really meant to be as important as he was in the game, but after Takayashi liked the design so much, he sort of created and, and brought him into the story more. Um, and the design of Hest was just uh, an aside, so Konishi has considered him possibly as the butler for uh, Erika at first, which is sort of funny to think about uh, how, it, how it all came out uh, at the end. But what's really cool is um, with Pro Perfect Chronology, they really revamped uh, how the characters look. So when you're playing the game, uh, it's sprite-based. You know, you're when you're exploring and in your battles, it's sprite-based. But they have portraits come up, so you get nice, really great uh, portraits of these characters. 
And when you compare the original portraits to the portraits uh, in perfect chronology, some of them are sort of what you'd expect, sort of just like a brought-up-to-date, fresher model, but some of them are drastically different, and uh, I think Erica is one of, if not the yeah. most different, um, you know, from one version to the next. That that was, like, I, having played the original and going to the 3DS version, I didn't even really notice at first that they were that different until I saw Erica, and I was like, who's this? <laughs> this isn't what I remember. Yeah, like you said, I stock, I feel like it's just sort of a different pose and a little different, you know, look to it, obviously, but... Yeah, some of them, like, Erica is, like, she has, like, short hair in the original one, and then she just, yeah, looks so different in uh, in the updated version. I wonder why they, they decided to make such a drastic change. Well, it's funny, too, because um, in, in an interview, uh, Kanishi had actually said that Erica was the hardest one uh, to draw, that he went, he did her, I think he went over her, like, a hundred times, and he... He said there was just no aspect of it that he just felt was was clicking. So he said he went through like countless different hairstyles and and different costume designs. That he he definitely wanted that European like medieval European royal look to her, but trying to balance it was definitely something he was struggling with. The act for the perfect chronology, the it wasn't actually a Konishi that did it. It was it was redrawn uh, by Masaki Haruka. Uh, who had worked on Castlevania Order of Ecclesia. Yeah, because I, I also found out it's uh, specifically a different portable platform is what the remake was originally done. And it was it was before... It, it was Harada was committed to doing Tokyo Mirage Sessions. And basically when that got going, he had to put that Radiant Historia remake aside. It seemed like Harada was really the driving force of this remake even happening. But I definitely like the new designs, like Erica in particular. I, I, if if you were to show me both pictures and I hadn't played the game, I would, or having played the game or not knowing about the old one or whatever, I still would have picked the new one. Like she just seems more on point to me. Yeah, uh, you can you can buy the old art with DLC. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Perfect Atlas! Chron one of the worst things about Perfect Chronology is the DLC, which some of the things are just like it's an experience booster. Give us three bucks. Uh, there's they also gave the you that with the vault. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's also the the bathing suit fan service mode where I think everybody's in bathing suits. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah, but I, I, but it's actually some of the later DLC that's coming. Um, like seems to add new stuff, which is actually kind of interesting. But I haven't I haven't played any of it yet. I'm good with the with what they've done. I I don't think I need to give them any more money. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't sound all that appealing to me. No, but even like you're saying with the medieval, it was, it's funny that each like each kingdom had that like uh, Alastil and Grenord for sure definitely had that medieval European like the castle and the kingdom sort of thing. And then it was funny to see uh, Cygnus uh, had had it was kind of the same time period. But that Middle Eastern uh, yeah. look, and even like even with the music, it, and then with Celestia having kind of the uh, Rivendell, <laughs> <laughs> the you know the elves in the in the forest kind of feel. It was uh, interesting that each each kingdom, even though Grenorg and Al still kind, they felt pretty similar to me, stylized wise. Like, I guess to me, Alistair always felt more like just metally, you know, like so industrialized like everything was metal i felt like you know 
more so than Granorg. Yeah, whereas Granorg felt, um, maybe it's part of the reason for the name, felt like grainy. Like, a little rougher, whereas Alastel is a lot cleaner. Yeah, I could, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I've thought all of the areas were really, really cool. Um, obviously, they were, aside from those two, they were pretty drastically different. You know, you started to get to that desert and the, like, Forja, you get, like, the, the lush greens. Yeah. And to me, my favorite area was Celeste. Uh, I just, the music was so good in there, and, oh, I just, I love those foresty areas. It's just a, it's a real pretty game. I think that the art holds up very well. Even, even the DS version, I think, still holds up to uh to you know the modern discerning eye i think the th- i think the 3ds version in a lot of respects especially artistically like i i like it a lot more not to the detriment of the ds version i just think the 3ds it looks better well and having played since i haven't played the 3ds in a while i was a little concerned about going back to it having played so much on the switch and i i didn't feel like it was a it obviously is a step down but i didn't feel like it affected my experience yeah, like I, this, I mean, I think for all three of us, uh, the Switch has dominated our lives. Um, and Radiant Historia was the first time I've gone back to the 3DS since like Samus Returns. And I, yeah, like you said, David, I expected it to be way, way worse of an experience going back to the 3DS, but it really wasn't. I, I still adore that system. I, yes, I want every game to come out on Switch. But right now, every game is not on Switch, and there are a lot of games on 3DS, and those games are excellent. So, so I'm still cool with 3DS. Yeah, I was actually playing Heist on there, so I've I've been playing the 3DS a little bit more actually than I had. You know, like I said, I probably had touched it since maybe a, an hour of Metroid Returns or Samus Returns. <laughs> yeah, I think that the other aspect of it too is like when when you go from like the Wii to the Wii U, there's that obvious step up. HD. But to me, like, with the 3DS, yeah, to the HD, so, like, the 3DS to the Switch is kind of similar, but the difference is with the 3DS is having that dual screen is pretty nice. Oh, I was gonna say, and with the 3DS is, it's still slightly more portable to me than the Switch, oh, because I, I of the screen being 100%. protected, and it's smaller, you can stick it in your pocket, like, it's just, it's easier to, to move around, and it's a little bit easier to, to hold when you're kind of out and about, like, it's still, it's, it's not as... Oh. Uh, it's not as big like it's just it's just a little more comfortable i would say underrated feature too is that you can advance the text with the d-pad so you know what i mean like i hate when I, yeah. i'm playing a game and i'm like trying to grab a drink and then i have to come back to press a you know? <laughs> so it's so nice to have that like oh the d-pad works that i can sort of advance the text there's just a lot of great quality of life stuff in this game um and i've, I've always appreciated about that like there, there's a big part of this game is the time travel element where you're kind of redoing different things and you can so easily skip through text or, or fast forward through it if you need to. And yeah, I, I like this game a lot, guys. It's real good. <laughs> well, and the, the voice acting was added in too. Which, yes. Uh, not everything was read, but enough of it to keep that it was like noticeable and, and was just nice. Yeah, I think every main character, um, and then, like, I guess, like, even secondary main characters, like, might a little bit, but yeah, well, like, I'm trying to think. Yeah, like, Ke- I mean, like, Keel has one, Keel has a voice actor, uh, Noah does. Yeah. Like, all of the, all of the villains do. Yeah, and then characters like the Chief of Celeste, like, they don't. But, like you said, it, it doesn't really yeah. ever feel like, oh, why doesn't this character, like, they still made vocal 
noises, you know, like they'd have like a sentence like, oh, yeah, oh, yes. it is. It is comical when someone doesn't have a voice and you're like, oh, they're not important. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I met this person. Yeah. Don't need to really worry about them. too. Yeah. Much. You're like, oh, he's a voice. Ah, I got to pay attention now. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> I think Stock's voice actor is very good. Granted, I did not play all of this game with um, like, I mean, I like played some like at work and while watching TV and stuff. So I didn't like play it with the voice with the sound blaring. But Stock's voice actor, I think, worked very well. Nothing else was offensively bad. Some characters weren't as good, but nothing, nothing adversely affected my time with the gameplay. Yeah, no glaring issues where you're yeah. like, ooh, like how did that get in there, you know? Or how? That yeah, and it, I mean, for me, it's just I, I think Stock's voice actor is perfect for that character. Yep, yep, and of course you're going to be hearing his yeah, voice the most yeah. throughout the and and that's the, game, so. the the most important thing to nail is Stock, and they did it. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about stock in a little bit too. <laughs> well, since we're talking about the voice acting, we we should, might as well start uh, going to the music because the music was outstanding in my opinion. Oh yeah, yeah. It's from my favorite com- my favorite video game composer. Maybe you should say her name then, or you could tell me if I butcher it. <laughs> Yoko Shimomura. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's that. Yoko Shimomura. Close. Yeah, I think Good. so. I mean, I <laughs> so, I, uh, I, know, like, I don't speak Japanese, um, and. I embarrassingly, when I first discovered her in the 90s, I thought she was a dude and then was like, wait, what? Oh, okay, cool. He's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Because it was, I, I mean, yeah. for, for me, it's, uh, she did Super Mario RPG, which Super Mario RPG is a game that I would probably term one of my favorite of all time. Uh, but it was really, it was, it was a game that was instrumental in taking me from a kid who liked playing video games to a kid who was super crazy into video games. And a lot of that was, I think that soundtrack is like outstanding and it like uses bass in a way that makes it feel a lot more bouncier and playful than a lot of other similar games that I played. And it just, it stood out. And so once I figured out what her name was and then finally learned her gender, uh, then I, whenever I hear that she's a part of a game, I, I, my ears perk up because I know the, the music's going to be great. Yeah, it makes a big difference. And I think that I think the soundtrack and yeah, the soundtrack and Radiant Historia is is fantastic. It's oh, sets it's the mood wonderful. great. It's very catchy music. I know back I have the on the DS version I had the special edition, and I I played that that soundtrack that came with it the little CD. I played that a lot. I listened to those songs a whole lot. And it was funny she didn't know they were doing the CD. She was she was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just mention a couple of the other uh, just to mention a couple of other achievements like she did she does the music for Kingdom Hearts series uh, she did the Mario and Luigi titles she did one of my favorite games or was a part of it anyway uh, for Final Fantasy 15 which I thought had a, a tr- terrific soundtrack as well and I think that her start uh, I think she worked on Street Fighter 2 I think that was one of her first games that she worked on yeah I think I saw that too and she worked on a Xenoblade I think the first one she wasn't like, once again, she was part of a team of composers and, and like, I think she even like did some smash brothers brawl remixes and stuff like that. She's, I mean, if you go and look at her, her, her resume, like it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's long. (laughs) What I think was uh, so nice about the music with this game too, is because how it works is you're going to be sort of traveling obviously throughout time, but you find yourself sort of in different, regions of the world 
for somewhat ex- extended period of time, you know what I mean? Like you sort of go and do your thing in Cygnus and that surrounding area. So you hear those sort of that music for a little while, but then when you revisit a different part in history, it's so refreshing to go back to the music from the uh, like previous towns. Like, cause I feel like there's a point where like, you don't go to Alistel for quite some time, you know? And then when you go back, it's like, it sort of hits you. It's refreshing to hear that music again. And like you said, I mean, I don't think there were really any areas. Um, I played this game probably like 95% with the the volume, you know, like sort of paying attention to it. So it just, like you said, I don't think there was really any areas of the game where I wasn't at least stopping to recognize like, man, I, I like this is a pretty nice music or pretty nice song to go along with this area. She had actually said in an interview that uh, one of the main things for her is putting emphasis on making music to match the imagery and, and the atmosphere of the game where you are. So she had actually requested... Uh, to see some of the, like, she wanted to see the characters and some of the settings. Uh, and she had said, obviously, when she was starting it, they, they didn't have a whole lot for her to go on. So she would use what they had, but then uh, would create things in her, in her own mind <laughs> that she said a lot of them didn't exist in the game, but she had a fun time thinking about what would be in the game and, and creating tracks based on that. So it was, it's interesting to to know that, you know, that she's making sure that the music really gives you the feel of what you're looking at. Yeah, I wonder if, uh, how drastically different the final, you know, art direction was opposed to what was in her head when she was sort of coming up with these ideas. (laughs) Maybe she was close or not. (laughs) Yeah, for the, for the remake, um, she added, I think, five new songs, right? Like there was, there was new music created by by Yoko Shimomura for the remake. Yeah, because well, they she would have made some new ones for the the, the third timeline. The yeah, and I think Vault of Time Crimson Chronicle. I, th- I think the Vault of Time also has original music as well. But there's definitely stuff in the possible history that that is new. But yeah, great soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Well, like you said, uh, when you hear what she's done and and that she's going to be part of something, it definitely piques your interest. Yeah. All right, so how about we move on? Let's talk about the battle system. So the battle system uses this grid, which if, well, you know, if you're this far into this and you haven't played this game, a little confused, but all right, carry along. <laughs> um, so the grid system is, it's a, it's a turn-based battle mechanic. So so all that's like you run into enemies on the overworld, you go into a battle screen. The way the battle set up is that your party of three characters is on the right side of the screen and to the left is a three by three grid. Uh, the three by three grid will have enemies strewn about it. Then your characters have regular attacks. They also have special attacks that can do things like push the character to the back row, pull them up to the front row, hit them to hit them over a column to the right, or hit them over a column to the left. Uh, those are kind of the basics. Is that you want to you know push character push enemies all onto the same square so that way when a character does a normal attack, it hits more than one enemy at one time. And that's a lot of the early strategies around that. And I, I think that some of that early strategy that you learn is effective throughout pretty much the entire game. Where it does get twists is there's, uh, you know, a couple enemies that you'll come across and bosses that, you know, can't be moved or have other restraints like that. I was just going to say, or it could be like the hell spider that takes up the entire grid. Yeah, yeah, where it's just <laughs> like, yeah, all you just you fire everything. But yeah, so so it's all about kind of controlling and maneuvering enemies on that grid and there's other things that are in it that i think are pretty cool like the whole trap system which is really introduced with ought that's where you know 
she can lay down a bomb or electric trap or whatever, and then you, with another character, can hit an enemy into that, and then it's more damage. And there's just a lot of smart stuff like that. Then there's, like, mana burst attacks, which, you know, special attacks, yay! That There's another meter! Meters, yay! <laughs> New to the remake are support skills, which are, if you play Tokyo Mirage Sessions, that concept should seem really familiar. Because that's where that Harada used that in Tokyo Mirage Sessions, and then when he worked on the Radiant Historia remake, he was like, let's bring that into this. So um, throughout the game, you're going to have three characters, but you'll have other people you know, on the bench, and at random intervals, they might come in and help out. Um, as I'm saying that, I have the strong urge to go and, and replay Tokyo Mirage Sessions, because that game's awesome. I would love uh, that game for a Switch port. It would be perfect. Yeah, it would be so perfect. I, I I don't have a lot of faith in that ever happening, but... That's a shame, because it really would work well on that system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the battle system in Radiant Historia, I think, is, is pretty neat. It's definitely... It's original, but I do think that the battle system kind of just gets boring and overwrought at times. Yeah. But I don't know how do, how do you guys feel about it? Well, the the turn-based part was uh, the turn-based part was interesting to me because you can actually control when you fight to a certain extent. So on the second screen you'll have it'll actually show you whose turn it it will be now and in the future and you can actually switch that person's turn with someone else in your team or even with an enemy the benefit of switching with say an enemy is that you can using that grid system you can push everyone into that one spot and if you've lumped up a bunch of turns in a row then you can really just go to town on the enemy with multiple with multiple hits i enjoyed i mean it's it's just another like you said another meter that you have to track and and keep aware of but it's neat to have the like just like i like complicated things in games it takes it takes a while to get used to them, but I enjoy that you can do so much with it. So I mean, like I said, the, at the beginning, it was when you're trying to learn the system, it can be frustrating. And the first, it it almost seemed like the first few battles going in between kingdoms and and doing story items were just filler. Uh, at the beginning, because on top of the fact that you couldn't do everything, like all of the moves hadn't been unlocked yet, it just seemed like a lot of the beginning of the game was story driven. So you would just yeah. have like two fights on the way to, you know, you'd have your introduction, you'd be put out into the world, you'd have like a fight or two that seemed to take longer than it should for a first or second fight of the game, and then you would get to where you were going. And it just, so those first few fights because it just took a while to get used to. And I can see where they were thinking like tutorial. This is kind of like your tutorial, figure it out. So at the beginning, I was a little like, yeah, I'm not really feeling this. But then as soon as you started getting like when you when you got Ot and, and was able to start using traps, like that was pretty neat. You had that, that extra aspect to it. Uh, when you started to get the characters that could hit like a row or a column, uh, that was pretty neat. So it, it got better as the game went on. But yeah, for me... Um... I liked it. Um, I thought it was it's a cool idea, like you said, to be pushing and pulling the enemies sort of around this grid. Um, you know, when like you said, when we get Ot, I thought that was really cool. Like, oh, you can set up a trap in the, the one corner, you know, stack a couple people and get them over on that, and it's going to be doing a big damage. But I think a drawback of the battle system with 
the idea like you're supposed to be pushing and stacking enemies to do more damage and and pull these combos off but because of that every battle i felt like had quite a few enemies to deal with um you know four five six enemies for even just like a, a random little battle and like you said if you were to stack um stack them up you can dispose of the enemies pretty quickly but you're going to be b- uh, burning through mana pretty quickly as well too so i always felt like i I was sort of tentative because it's like, all right, I'm going to get into this battle and I'm going to go through a bit of my mana and I don't really know how, you know, if I get to the end of this little area and then all of a sudden I'm going to need uh, a bunch of mana because now there's a boss, you know, or if it's just like, oh, well, there's just a, a handful of lowly enemies that, you know, I can sort of burn through my mana and not worry. Now, they sort of counteract that a little bit with um, pretty much uh, as you're going through the game. There are little save spots where you can sort of jump back to um, Historia um, or you can save and you can also refresh there, too, with um, mana crystals, I believe they're called, um, which are sort of a limited resource and it heals you up. But you don't have a lot of them. So and and I'm sure, you know, I'm not alone in the sense in RPGs that I I have my items and I don't want to use them because I'm going to need them for a big battle, you know, so it's just so that sort of had me a little bit like would sometimes see me ignoring battles because I wanted to make sure I had enough mana. And then that sort of ended up leading me to just do some grinding in the vault to sort of bump up my level so that I could end up skipping matches or, uh, or battles, I should say. Yeah. I got into the habit of, I would be burning through my mana and then like when I would get to like, Oh, I can change areas Quick, go back to Alistel and hit up that inn, yep. and then go back out where I was. <laughs> yeah, jump to the uh, prologue. Just because, like, yeah, like mana crystals, like I forget, like it's it's they're just such a limited resource that I just didn't feel like dealing with them. So I just like be like, oh, I'm low on mana. Okay, uh, if I don't have the items, if I don't want to burn through the items, I can easily just go back and go to find an inn throughout time, and then and use that. That was one of the other things that I found funny about the system was, so there are these crystals that you f- you, you'll you find them in treasure chests. Not They're pretty rare. Uh, you can also buy them for a hefty amount of gold. Yeah, there's that shady dude who's like, you want some crystals? <laughs> yeah, show me the cash. I got yeah. some, <laughs> some PCP. I got these well, mana then, crystals. Yeah. Well, then when you don't buy one, he's like, well, good luck then. You know, <laughs> like, almost like, he, almost like he knew you were in trouble. Yeah, like, screw you, pal. Yeah. I got I got kids to feed. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, you could use these. So you'd have these crystals, and you could use them to recover. Like you you recover your health, you recover your mana or your magic. Uh, but the one thing that I, f- I found really funny was when you died, like when it was game over. There'd be the option if you had three crystals in your inventory, you could use you could forfeit those three crystals to restart the battle that you were just in. And I don't think there was ever a situation I did that, because if you said no, you would go back to the last save point, which probably wasn't that far away anyway. <laughs> you know what? That happened to me once. Um, I, I used it. I used the three crystals because I was like, I couldn't remember the last time I saved. And I was like, you know what? It probably wasn't too far because there are save spots all over the spot, uh, place in this game. So it's, you know, yeah. it, you could save pretty much every couple of minutes if you really wanted to. And I was like, I was like, I really don't want to redo a bunch of stuff. So I used that, and then that took me down to like like one or two crystals, and then I was afraid to use them the rest of the game. 
And then I also made sure to save every single time I pass one of those the rest of the game. <laughs> well, that's the thing with like with me, just years of playing RPGs. Like the thing, the one thing that's in my head all the time is if you have the opportunity to save, you save. Oh yeah. And if you have if you have fifty spots that you can put saves, you don't overwrite. You just use them all up. You know, <laughs> you just keep going. <laughs> so so I was like, no, you're not taking my crystals. Just send me back to two minutes ago. I'm fine with that. You know? And then it was funny with like, the same thing with Neil saying, um, you know, going to an inn when, when there was trouble. That that was the other thing I would do is uh, when I was at the node, because you can go back in time, uh, I would, if I couldn't fast travel there, I would just go into the Historia and go back to a, a time when I was in a place with an inn and then just hop back to the to the node. It took a little bit of time, but it was... It's not really that much because you can skip through a lot of, like... I don't know, like, when you're going through a story, it's always, like, stacks running up the stairs, but you could just hit A and skip it, yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I think I went back to that very first node when you uh, have to decide, you know, the the very first choice of the game, so that, that was my go-to to heal up. But I guess speaking of timelines, now, this is, uh, initially, this sort of confused me early on in the game, because I, I wasn't exactly sure how I was going, but after you sort of make the first choice, it, it sort of comes to light. So, in the beginning of the game... You start out, and essentially you have the choice to either sort of stick in the little group you have going, where it's sort of you and your two partners working under this one person, or you can join the army. So it, it's like you need to think about this decision, and it's going to have cons- – like, it, it, this is a big choice, so think about it. So now I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, so is there a right or wrong answer here? You know, early on I was like, whatever, I'm just going to go the one way, and you end up going – um, a little bit and it branches off and then it it gets to a point where it's like oh game over like you can't go any further so you're like okay i must have picked the wrong uh the wrong answer you know what i mean so you go back and uh essentially you find the white chronicle book sort of floating around in the world um and that that's sort of the save spot i just talked about a minute ago and you can go to historia where this is where you sort of go back and then you can open up the White Chronicle and this is where they sort of lay out the timeline for you and there's nodes on each area and you can't travel to all of them. It sort of chronolize, uh, it sort of keeps track of the story for you so you can, it's actually nice to go back and if you sort of forgot a, a point, you can sort of get a quick little summary but there are little nodes on each timeline that you can travel to and these are sort of where a decision had to be made. So I've hit a dead end and I go back to that area, that first choice, and now I make the opposite choice and you start going and eventually you run into a dead end on that line. So now you're sort of like, what the heck's going on? But you find out that the two timelines sort of interact with one another. So if you do certain actions in one timeline, it's going to affect the other timeline. So there are some points where, uh, someone needs to be saved in one timeline and you go and you do that. And then now all of a sudden you can jump back to other timeline and something is now changed because that person was saved and it sort of gives you a path to continue forward. And how the game works is essentially you're going to be bouncing back and forth between these two timelines and how, like I said, you're going to run into, you know, dead ends or seemingly dead ends, and then you're going to know, okay, I need to go do something in the opposite timeline that's going to sort of affect and open up a path for me to continue on. 
And there's some side quests, of course, along the way that sort of in the, the book sprout, you know, little arms or limbs out of the main timelines. But I think what's really great is how the timeline is sort of laid out for you. Um, because it might sound confusing jumping between timelines and nodes and this and that and the other thing, but the way the game lays it all out in the in the game for you to visually see is for me it was really you know sort of helped to wrap my head around it seeing being able to look and see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, just an example of that too. So um the one that jumps out to my mind was so you got your standard timeline and your alternate timeline. And I believe it was in the alternate timeline where uh Rosh uh who has an iron gauntlet uh instead of an arm. So he's basically got a robot arm. Uh, the robot arm gets broken in uh, a battle, and he's depressed to the point where he no longer wants to fight. So it's explained to, to Stock that they don't have the means to fix it, and, and Rosh doesn't want to fight anymore. So then his uh, guides from Historia would then say, well, it looks like you, you can't do anything now, but uh, wouldn't it be nice if you could go to that other timeline and find the pieces that you needed? So then you could, they would give you good direction on, okay, you know, at what point would there be the opportunity that I would be able to find these pieces that the other timeline needs to fix so that I can move forward. So in that instance, there was a, a fight in the other timeline with Rosh where you go back and you take the gauntlet pieces from that timeline, you go back to the original timeline where when you first got there, they were saying, okay, we don't have the pieces. And then you're like, oh, do you mean this piece? That's, that was my that? favorite part. Was every time it was, you needed something, all of a sudden you're like, well, I just happen to have that in my pocket. Yeah. Oh, you mean this old thing? <laughs> or, or I love the moments too when, uh, what is it? Uh, I'm probably going to, what is it, Tio and Lipty? Those are the, your, 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 your Historia pals. When like they show up and they talk to you. And then like Marco and Rainey are like, yo, what were you saying? They're like, yeah, did nothing. Yeah, <laughs> was, don't worry about I it. I wasn't just muttering to myself to two little midgets, like. And she's like, "Who, who are those guys?" And Stock was like, "There was no one here." Yeah. What are you talking about. Yeah, yeah. She's like, "I just saw them." Can't speak of the chronicle. <laughs> right. And then later in the game, there's the fun. One of the funny one too is there's a very important what is it, like a jewel or something, some something that they need that no one no one in the world should know about. It's buried away in the in the depths of a place that that no one should even know exists. <laughs> and she's telling Stock, yeah, so we need this thing. Um, there's no way we can get it. Uh, nobody knows about it. Like we're just we're just screwed. Yeah, and he's like, oh, you mean this? Like it's right here. <laughs> although although that was the one thing. Yeah, the one Good thing that Stock, finally man. outed him was when he got the thing that he should not that no one knowed about knew about. And and was buried away in the where no one could get it. That that was finally the one thing that went made made somebody think mm, something's not right here. <laughs> Blew his spot. Yeah, I mean, was this confusing at all for you, David? Like with the two timelines, and then I guess Neil with the third timeline. I at least early on, I can imagine that would be really confusing. Well, I did. David, David, you answer that, and then I'll I'll go on about the third. Uh, I think I had bit. a similar experience where I wondered, making the decisions. It's like, okay, at what point is this going to affect what I've done, and 
you know, again, the same thing of, am I making the right choice? Well, I guess I'll find out at some point. But it didn't take too long to realize that uh, even though there are two timelines, it's still a linear story. Like, it's it's still, there is still a beginning and end. It has a very nice rhythm. And, and the thing that keeps it flowing, I think, is that when you open up the history, like, there's always the story. You can read what's happened in the past. So they what they do is when you open up the story menu... Uh, both timelines show on on the screen, and it's very clear. So they make a clear t- uh, alternate timeline and standard timeline, and there's nodes that basically summarize what has happened so far as you go through the timelines. So it's really easy to see to kind of map where you are and where you've been and where you've gone. So it doesn't feel like two stories happening at once. It do- it does feel like one story that's moving together. That that's the way it felt for me. I think it, yeah. So I I think that in in its initial form with the with the you know the, I think what is it standard history and alternate history are what they're both called. I think in that it they play off each other nicely, and I think there are moments where like you kind of are like oh wait what are what's Marco Rainey's deal right now like because you do kind of get like you interact with characters across both timelines. And you kind of get a full view of these characters that way, which is which is interesting. But then it leads to moments where you're like, oh, wait, no, in this timeline, I like it. it I don't know. For, for, for me, it's not that it's confusing. It's just there's moments where there's layers of dramatic irony that I think sometimes aren't reflected in the dialogue because these you know more about these characters than they're aware that, you know, if that that kind of makes sense. No, yeah, for sure. But I think the third timeline, when you play through it, just makes it horribly confusing, which is I I totally understand why there are two different ways to play through this remake. There is the mode that you guys played where it's essentially the game as it was originally, where you're bouncing between the two timelines. It follows a pretty good rhythm like you can. I mean, I, I, the ideal way to play through this game is you pick a timeline, you go until you're stopped. Then you go to the other one, you go until you're stopped. Then over the course of that, you should have ran into something that opens up the other part of the timeline. So then you go back over there and you go back and forth. And it kind of you know segments the game nicely and I think works out very well. How it works with the addition of possible history, which is the third timeline, um, sort of, is at the end of chapter one, uh, you're introduced to uh, Nemesia who has this pretty dope ship called like the Duname, the Dunamis or something. And it's going through time and there's all these kind of hiccups in timelines that you need to go fix. So at the end, from, from after chapter one onward, at the end of every chapter that you get to in standard or alternate history, there are more quests that unlock in possible history. And what possible history does is it takes you to, there's, there's not a cohesive third timeline it takes you to all sorts of different timelines. The the first one that they show you is uh, Rosh is Rosh is the general. There is like like Heist is not in command. Hugo's not in command. It's Rosh, um, and and then like he gets attacked randomly, and then you stop it, and then that's the end of that quest. Like these are all very short bite sized quests that all kind of once again add color to the characters that you've been interacting with whether playable characters are enemies 
And one of the things, as, as I, I'm diving more to spoiler territory here, is Possible History does this weird thing where it kind of redeems every enemy. Because it's like you, you find these different items and show them to, you know, like, uh, you, uh, trying to refresh my memory on names, you, you show them to like Hugo and, and, and Heiss and like you make them happy. And then they're like, I don't want to be evil anymore. <laughs> That's and, oh, and but this is a possible history. It's not reflected in the main game. And like I, I had fun with the possible history stuff. I, I think it makes it harder to keep on the threads of possible and alternate history when you keep on having or from standard and for the main game. It, it keeps it more difficult to keep on to those threads when you're going to these. Um, kind of random, weird, offshoot, alternate histories. Yeah, and I and like I because because it was totally brand new content for me. Whenever I get ones, it it was a nice change of pace from the main story, and it was stuff that I'd never seen before. Uh, so the way they handle that apparently in the mode that you guys so what is it? I think perfect mode is when you play it where possible histories worked in to the main game. Uh, append mode is where you play through the game as essentially how it was on the DS version uh, with, you know, the quality of life changes, the vault of time, which is a, uh, like basically um, uh, an experience boosting dungeon that you unlock like five hours into the game. That is new for the 3DS version, but is also present during the course of Append. Uh, So you play through the game as normal. You get to what would have been the end of the game on the DS version. And how they handle it, I think you have to like do you have to get all of the the nodes and everything. I did I did not get the perfect ending. I, I yeah, that's like Googled all of this, my... or not all of them, but like I guess there's a certain amount of key yeah. important side quests you need to do. Yeah, but apparently when when you get to the end of that, instead of you know seeing the end of the, or you see the end of the game, and then Tio and Lifty show up and are just like, yo, there's a third timeline, go do it. And then you do all of those, uh, all of the Nemesia missions all in a row. And then you can, you know, finish the, 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 get the, the perfect ending of the entire thing. I wonder if that would have been a better way to introduce it anyway. I mean, like you said, it would have kept the main story on point a little, or a little more focused and then sort of gives yeah. you that new lot afterwards. But I guess also sort of once you see the, those credits roll, sometimes you just put the game down and not really worry about the, the quote-unquote new game plus or post game you know material yeah like i like i have my complaints about it but i think that the way they handled it is 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 pretty okay i just don't think they i don't think atlas or or the game or like what's in the game is clear about how this is all handled um i think that's the only problem with it because you have the options of if you've never played it before you play it as originally constructed and then have the the you know the the ex, the slightly confusing but expanding post game content is this possible history because if there's one thing that annoys me with remakes and I always think to Donkey Kong Country Returns 3D when I think about this so Donkey Kong Country Returns came out on Wii great game then they did a remake on 3DS and it's the exact same game except for they added a new world. The only way to unlock this world is by like 100%ing the whole game. Ugh, so it. you could have gotten Donkey Kong Country Returns on Wii 100% of the game if you wanted to see the new content 
the the you know the 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 new world at the end of Donkey Kong Country Returns 3D, you have to 100% the game again. At least you had practice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so I'm glad I, I I'm happy with the way that they did Radiant Historia, but I think I mean I think possible history is is uh, not needed, but at the same time it's cool that it's there. Like it was it was it was neat to see some of these weirder offshoot alternate yeah maybe stories. like a value add for the remake like if you had purchased it before just to give you some extra content yeah. and uh, we'll get into it after the break but it the third timeline uh, actually does like finish the story I guess you could say but we'll get into that well maybe yeah. maybe now is actually the perfect break we'll take a quick intermission and then when we come back we'll uh, have a discussion about the characters of the game because there's a lot and uh, we'll go uh, over the story and and uh, have a discussion <laughs> about what we liked and what we didn't. So now what we'll do is we'll, we're going to talk about the story and all the characters within Radiant Historia. One of the main great things about this game is that there's tons of characters. They're all terrific. So we're just going to go through them, discuss who they are, what we like about them. Uh, I just want to give uh, a shout out though to the writing team on Radiant Historia. So that's uh, Yo Hakaduki. Oh man, I'm butchering that name. Uh, Suzu Tanami. <laughs> Kazuhiro Okamama. Uh, because basically, so what happened was, is, um, the director, uh, Takayashiki, he developed concept for the game and the general overview, and then they handed it off to the three scenario writers. The first one, uh, Haduki, uh, worked on the Ground Lancer series. He also did, uh, Shim, Shimagama Tensei Devil Survivor right before Radiant Historia. So he had a, a lot of experience. Uh, the other two writers were the Radiant Historia was actually their only accredited game. But uh, they did a great job, so I just wanted to make sure uh, we named them there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why everybody who worked on Radiant Historia isn't just making every video game now, because it's just such a damn cool game. They made a great game, and they said, you know what, we're going out on top. Yeah, they're like it, it, it's only down from here. Like I guess sales wise, it could go a lot higher, but right critically, this is it. This is the top of the mountain. Yeah, I mean, they did a great job, and. It, it kind of just proves, like, because when you hear a lot of the backstory, like, Atlas, like, Takayashiki had a lot of crazy ideas, including, like, four different countries and 16 different endings, uh, and I think Atlas did a good job of focusing his story, uh, and it really shows in the in the end product. Everybody everybody involved did a great job, and it's too bad, like, a lot of people have gone on to, to new and, and terrific things, and hopefully the, the ones that didn't are... Just doing something uh, great that we just don't hear about. So to get into the story, so at the very beginning, basically, we're introduced to the main character, Stock. So we don't get much of a backstory for him at the beginning. Um, all we know is that he was in the Alice, the Alistair army at one point as uh, like a recruit, and then as time went on, he was recruited over to the uh, SI division, Special Intelligence Division. He's basically he he goes from being an infantryman to being a spy. Yeah, and uh, it was actually funny. I heard Greg on Radio Free Nintendo, who had mentioned that Stock was a spy, but he was known as the man in the red cloak. 
Yeah, which yeah. Is, he seems like a pretty terrible spy. <laughs> like, he wears very distinctive clothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember the one part when they joined the, like, traveling enter, um, entertainers. And they're like, well, you're, you know what? Your suit looks interesting enough that it could be a costume anyway, so you don't need to change. Yeah. Yeah. As he's sneaking through and gathering yep. intelligence. And when we're first introduced to Stock, he's a very stoic character. Like, he doesn't show much emotion. He's just kind of a get-the-job-done kind of guy. Yeah, no and, nonsense. Uh, exactly. And the director, uh, Harada, uh, really hoped that people noticed his progression from the beginning to the end. Because it, it, Big he, time. his character does uh, progress quite a bit. Like, he's he's nothing like he was at the beginning of the game. And that's yeah. one of the, the great things about it is is to see him grow as a person so much. Yeah, because when you're first introduced to him, I don't want to say he was boring, but he just wasn't that interesting, you know? Like, And like you said, I guess that was sort of by design to sort of give him like the, he just sort of does his thing, he does what he's asked to do, and uh, he comes back and he just gets the job done. No, no BS, but like you said, the arc and how he grows and sort of the things that he does that are even funny where other characters will comment and be like... Oh, is it, who is this? This isn't the stock I know. You know, he wouldn't yeah. do something like that with a, for an, for instance, uh, he learns to sword dance in the one timeline and he has to perform <laughs> it in the other one. And, and they're like, oh, do you have any special skills? And he's like, well, yeah, hold on, let me do this. And everyone, you know, I think Rainey was like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, I just love that stuff. Um, it's, it's nice to just see a character in a JRPG go on a less traditional character development path. Like, I mean, the the first episode of this here, Thirsty Mage, went through Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which, no, I have not beaten Xenoblade Chronicles 2, but Boo. I don't know. It's It's got, got a little bit of a, a, a... I'm not saying it's bad, but, like, the main character in Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is that typical, like, boy with stars in his eyes who wants to be something, and then, like, goes on a journey to become something like stock is a, a non-traditional JRPG main character where he already is something and he's going on this different path. And it is like, he, he changes throughout the game and it's, it's kind of cool to see that because it's, it's against what we usually see in JRPGs. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that same beginning, we were actually even introduced. Uh, it's not completely clear at the time, but the main villain of the game Heiss is introduced right off the bat as his superior in the SI. I still feel like Heiss as the... I, I, <laughs> I get that Heiss is the literal end boss, but Heiss, even through it all, doesn't seem like the main villain, if that makes sense. Like, I I feel like... Uh, and I'm... I, God, I'm trying to look the... Who the hell is the... Is the queen just called the queen? Protea? Protea, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Like, Protea and Hugo are, like, much more nefarious to me than, than Heiss is. And, like, Heiss... Because Heiss, Heiss's ultimate plan is not necessarily one of, like, I hate all of you. It's just, like, no, this has to be done. I don't know. Like, I don't hate Heiss as much as I hate Protea and Hugo. Hugo's the worst. Oh, Yeah. Hugo's a, Hugo's a piece of shit. Hugo's like really the only character to me that didn't redeem himself by the end. Yeah, I, do, I, I guess I guess per, I guess Portea does have a little bit of a redemption arc, but like that's that's where like I I know that 
quite literally, Heist is the final boss. But, like, I I just don't see Heist as, as a pure villain. Well, and his motivations weren't evil. Yeah. Yeah, and like 95% of the game, you don't realize he is the bad guy. Yeah, and, and it also is a little bit like, I think that Heist's actions are more cowardly because he's supposed to be the sacrifice and then he's basically trying to mess with it so he's not and he's putting I, I it's it's still really not clear what Heiss's relationship to stock is he's the uncle okay yeah he's um he's Victor King Victor's brother and he kills Victor and kidnaps stock who okay. is the sacrifice and partial soul of Erica yeah yeah uh, or Ernst. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, Ernst slash Stock. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, like you said, to me, and then, of course, as it all unravels, which I'm sure we'll touch a little bit more on exactly how that story plays out, but like you said, you sort of find that Heist's motivation isn't necessarily from evil, pure evilness, but sort of from just anger at the world because of sort of the situation he finds himself and Stock, who doesn't know at the you know time what situation he's in as well, and yeah. like you said, it you could sort of relate a little bit, or maybe I should say feel sympathetic because you know if you were born to be killed, essentially, you know what I mean. Like it, I could see how that could be really taxing on a person, and how it could make them sort of take a take the the route of redemption or revenge, I should say, instead of where. You know, Stock, once he sort of finds out his plight is more of an optimistic, I'm going to do this for my friends, you know? It's sort of interesting to see how the two who are in a similar situation, how drastically different directions they went in solving their their situation. This might be a good time, too, just to maybe we'll just give the backstory. So essentially, there's one continent, and there's four, I believe, like four... Forest countries, there's a couple smaller ones, but essentially what's happening is that the continent is turning into a desert because way back in the past, uh, some genius set off a spell which was starting to drain the mana of the world. And essentially what happened was is when you lost all of your mana, you turned into a sand. So there was this slow process of the whole continent was turning into sand. Desertification. The desertification, yep. And the and what's funny is that the entire time, the only people that know that this is happening is the royal family of Grenorg. So, and and what they had been doing was basically delay this desertification. They had to sacrifice someone of royal blood. So essentially what would happen is someone in the royal family would have to be sacrificed. And this was the weird part to me, was that they had to sacrifice them twice they were killed once, reincarnated as into, like, basically their soul was given a new body. Yeah. Then they had to be sacrificed a second time. And this was basically the process that had been happening for generations until it got to the point where King Victor of Grenorg uh, had a brother. I, I don't know if his name was, I don't think his name was Heist, it was something else. But basically the brother had decided, no, like, screw this, this this isn't fixing it. So I'm, I'm going to take off. I'm going to take the Chronicles the black and white chronicles from the the empire so that this can't be used in the future or finding a way to stop it from happening in the future and then since since the uncle ran away they had to choose a a, a different sacrifice so the father had chosen his son Ernst to to be that sacrifice which angered Heist because he was his uncle and they kind of alluded to 
there was a story scene that they alluded to that really Heist had a close relationship with Ernst and Erica to the point where he was almost more of a father figure to Ernst than his own father was. And, and that's where once Ernst was sacrificed the first time and, and brought back, Heist decided that, no, like, you're not, I don't want him to die. So the reincarnated soul came back as, as stock and Heist kidnapped him and, and gave him a new identity so that he wouldn't know who he was and so that he could basically run away like he did. And I'm pretty sure, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Ernst was actually supposed to not be the one to be sacrificed. It was actually yeah. supposed to be Erica. But yeah. I guess Ernst uh, stood up against his father and that annoyed him. So he ended ended up using Ernst as the sacrifice. So that also sort of plays into Erica's little bit of like she should have, you know, her her guilt maybe Survivor's a guilt. towards being. Yeah, I should have been the one. I think for the other playable characters, I think Eric is one of my favorites. It's just the kind of thing that, in the grand scheme of the story, a lot of the other playable characters kind of don't matter. Um, and I think Eric is one of the ones that does have more of a core attachment to the overall, the, the main thrust. Funny to see the, the comparison, too, because Erica throughout the game was basically like, we have to do this sacrificing ritual to save the continent like she was very singular focused like we have to do this and heist was singularly focused on that no it doesn't it's just delaying it's not helping nothing can fix anything let's just let the world die and then to see stock kind of being pulled from both sides and then he's the one who eventually figures out i guess in the end it depends on the ending you get because if you don't do all the if you don't do all of the the nodes the, the, the world ends like yeah, if you don't get all the if you don't get all the nodes at the very end, the the first ending is that Stock does sacrifice himself to to save the continent. Yeah, and then in the perfect ending, once you've gotten all the nodes, Stock then has this discussion with Heist at the end that leads Heist to sacrifice himself. Yeah, I thought that was a really great true ending, you know, to sort of come full circle where it's like, you know, he was so headstrong against not being a sacrifice that he finally found someone worth sacrificing himself for, you know what I mean, in stock or, or Ernst, I guess, you know. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was a, a great ending. They made you jump through a lot of hoops to get to it, though. What what makes me, I guess, sh should we get into what's what's added in perfect chronology? Sure, the third, the... Yeah. So so the way that the, the, the game kind of ends in the, in its initial form, even with either ending, whether it's, uh, stock sacrificing himself or or stock convincing heist to sacrifice himself either way like world's still screwed like like it's still like it's only a matter of time nothing is really solved oh we're gonna look into how to fix it like yeah yeah dude that didn't work before like heist had however long to try to figure this out he ain't he ain't no <laughs> like it just kind of that there's it is what made Radiant Historia kind of very affecting to me is that that ending, that ending's just kind of still pessimistic. Like, it doesn't have a neat bow. It just kind of is like, okay, this is the end of this chapter. And then it's like, you know, stock story ends, but the overall world is still a mess. Yeah, well, and the funny story about that was initially Takeshiki just wanted the entire world to just end in ruins. <laughs> like, no, no, like, that's the way it ended. 
it turns into a desert game over. Yeah. Which is, I mean, but, but, but in a way, I feel like that's what the original ending is. Yeah, it's not literally, but it's just yeah, hinting at, oh, well, it, it gets to that point. So, all right. So here's, here's how uh, Possible History, the third timeline in perfect chronology, uh, works. So there's Nemesia, who's the, the new character with the funky hat that is, you know, on this, on this pretty cool ship that's, you know, out there in space time going through these different timelines and stuff. Uh, there's a third book. So in, in the main storyline, you have the White Chronicle, which is what uh, what Stock uses, and the Black Chronicle, which is what Heist uses to mess with Stock. Um, and those are kind of, you know, simpatico. They're, they're, you know, they both feed off each other. Nemesia has the Red Chronicle, which um, the whole point of that is that it's like, you know, looking for the reason for the decertification and how to fix it. So you're, as you go through on the different quests with her, you find all these artifacts and then all the artifacts, once all the artifacts are, fi- are found, then you go to right before the perfect ending um, of Heist sacrificing himself. And then instead, Stock persuades him to lend the power of the Black Chronicle. And then Stock joins up with the group and they fight, they, they fight the singularity. Which is the that's the cause of the desertification as the singularity, which also turns out to be Nemesia's brother, and then they defeat the singularity, and then the desertification's gone. Game over. And then the game ends. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's neat because the the singularity was actually created by Grenorg itself, because they I guess at one point they wanted to stabilize the mana in the empire, so they casted this spell which created the singularity and Tio and Lapidi, like the yeah, keepers Tio of Historia Lepidi. were the kind of the remnants of the sorcerer that cast the original spell. And essentially their job was to try to figure out, okay, how do we fix this? Cause we really, we really screwed this up. <laughs> <laughs> and basically they're just going through timeline after timeline, trying to find some, like one of the timelines where they fix what they screwed up. And yeah, that was that. Like you said, the it's it's almost funny to me that you wonder if that was pitched that singularity ending where they actually like fix everything. Was that pitched in when they first made the game back in 2011 and it just didn't make it, or if it was Harada yeah, conceived afterwards? Yeah, like if if Harada looked back at it and said, you know, I wasn't through, I wasn't overly happy that there wasn't a conclusion. We need a conclusion. Was it? Was it? Um, uh, what? Uh, what's the guy's name? Takeshiki. Was he the one who pitched the ruins idea, or was that Harada? No, that was Takeshiki wanted wanted the game to end in ruins. That was his okay. his idea, and it was so, it was Atlas or or like Harada that that said no, we, we we need to compromise here. So if you think about that, that Takeshiki worked on this game on DS, and he wanted the game to end in ruins. It could have been that that original ending was Harada and Takeshiki, um, you know, finding middle ground. You know, Takeshiki was not working on this remake. So that means Harada had the ability to make a neat and tidy happy ending. Which, I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. what he did. That was, uh, I think, one of the goals of the remake and adding content was to wrap up the whole game. Where I think originally there were supposed to be... There were, there were like two drop timelines from the original game that I believe were what they wanted to do with the remake, but then they kind of simplified it into just the one series of, you know, more or less one-off alternate timelines. Yeah, and it's funny, too, like, when you, if you get the perfect ending, 
they really do tie everything together because they act like, they literally go through each character and be like, this is what this person's doing now. Yeah. It's like the ending of Animal House. It's just like, and uh, Bluto Blutarski yeah. became a senator. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe this would be a good time to get into some of the other characters that we sort of meet throughout. Um, I mean, right off the bat, we're introduced, as you said, to Heist, and he sort of introduces us to our two main partners, or at least for the very you know initial part of the game, and that is uh, two mercenaries that... Uh, since have less their left their mercenary group, we sort of find out about that later on. But uh, Rainy and Marco um, are our first two sort of teammates that you know form up the initial party. That you know eventually we get some more. But I thought both of these characters, um, I thought they worked well. You know, I don't think either of them sort of jumped off the page to me quite as much. I mean, obviously Stock, I think, is the focal point of the game. Obviously, you know, he's got like the the biggest and personally best arc for any character you know but what did you guys think of uh rainy and um marco i think they're really good sidekicks i i can't initially i remember always wondering if like their story was actually going to go anywhere i don't really think it does i think it's just like oh they, they left a mercenary group cool um but i well rainy eventually becomes his wife yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, just I guess in terms of the game, at least. Um, yeah. Or like, and like that. You know, I mean, yeah. Like in in the in the future, the future endings. Yes, they they mean something. But like Marco and Rainey are well written, good side characters. Like I, I think it's a testament that it's a testament to Marco and Rainey being good. That in the grand scheme. Of video games how there's always like an annoying side character or two in any game with a lot of dialogue or text uh that marco and rainy are never really annoying they're they work well with stock well and they were they were atlas ads as well because originally originally they were supposed to be two faceless soldiers yeah that, that would, that just when they were looking off. at the story atlas was thinking yeah i was just thinking well why would you have these two nameless soldiers for this long and then you just killed them off so they didn't their attitude was is like no they they need to mean something so it was yeah. interesting to see yeah even if they had developed them and killed them off at some point i think would have worked well but yeah to have like literally two nameless partners with you seems sort of silly to me yeah and and i mean i think their their function in the story too is they become stock's moral center in a way because he cares about them uh, I mean, with Rainy, he cares about her a lot, as we find out. But, like, they, I mean, they go through a lot together, and it helps bring out Stock from his emotional shell, because he genuinely cares about Marco and Rainy, and you see that develop over the course of the story. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because initially, Stock didn't want to work with them. Nope, he wants to work he, alone. He's that, that solo guy. He's a lone wolf. A <laughs> What about Roche? Rosh, however you say his name. How how are we feeling about him? You know what? I, I liked him as a character. I never, I don't think even once used him. I mean, unless if there was like a mandatory fight that he jumped in on. But I never really used him in my actual party. Um, I thought, you know, sort of as Stock's best friend. And obviously he's a key part in the one, I mean, in both. I mean, the whole game, obviously. But the, yeah. the um, 
timeline in which you join the army, you you know he is sort of the the leader of the squadron, and you're sort of his his number one man on the side. So yeah, I think uh, I, I like him as a character. I think his progression is interesting. How it sort of you know how he feels so bad after losing his um his, his troops, and then like you said, he broke his gauntlet. You know, which is sort of the mechanicalized arm, and like how he sort of loses his will to fight. You know. But then how it sort of bounces back and how he finishes up strong, you know, and eventually becomes uh, the lieutenant of the army, I believe, right, is uh, sort of what he finishes off as, or the general, general, lieutenant general, I, I forget exactly. I forget what his exact title is. Yeah. But yeah, he's sort of like the commander of all of the troops, and, and <laughs> I thought it was funny at the end with the the battling the paperwork kind of joke there as well. <laughs> yeah. All my fights, and now it's the red tape that will end me. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it was funny, too, because really, he had started as kind of a stereotypical soldier who, I mean, when he lost his arm, he had that the gauntlet added in, which was like a technological marvel at the time. And the fact that he saw himself as the property of the army because of that, and to see him progress from kind of this tunnel vision soldier that just kind of listens. And, and there actually is a point in the game where, you know, Stock is thinking like, oh, he's not going to change and you kind of see that change of heart to go from, you know, I just do what I'm told to, no, I'm going to do what's right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that too. And it's funny, I mean, I guess sort of just to jump to another character on that point, uh, Viola, how she sort of sticks to her, her guns there uh, towards the end where it's she sort of can tell that Hugo and and sort of Alistair is not doing, you know, the right thing, but she's like, don't even bring it up, you know, I'm... I, I'm a soldier for this nation. I'm not going to turn yeah. my back on it. And she sort of, you know, goes down with uh, the ship there. Yeah. I like the feel was awesome. Cause Harada loved her. Uh, he felt that she was like the samurai who just believed in loyalty even to the end. Like even though she knew Hugo and, and the prophet was all BS, she still fought to the death because that's, that's just the way it was. Like she just believed in, she didn't want to give up that belief. Like, you could really see the pride, like her her strength and weakness at the same time was her pride. That she was this uh, super strong character, but she was so prideful. Like at the beginning, where they were discussing that they sent her off to the front lines almost to die because Hugo didn't want her around to usurp the power because people she looked was up too to popular, her so much. Yeah. yeah, but she was just like, "Well, that's what they tell me to do. I'm just gonna go do it." Hugo's the worst, man. Uh I know. He's, just, he's a little rat, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess we jump to Hugo. I mean, he is just literally the worst character. He's, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, like, I don't know exactly his title. Um, He sort of speaks for the prophet Noah, which is yeah. sort of the driving force behind Alistair. And it's like, I, you get to the point where it's like, they haven't seen the prophet Noah in a while, but Hugo always speaks for him. And then you're like, well, is the prophet even real? Did he kill the prophet Noah? And now he's sort of doing his own bidding, you know? And you just, he is such a dirtbag, you know? It's like anyone, like you said, uh, Viola gets a little bit of popularity. And what she get? The, she was the Valkyrie, right? Um, yeah. And, that, yeah. you know, the people saw her as that. And he, he saw she was getting a bit of following. So what's he do? He sort of just pushes her to the front lines where no one's going to see or hear from her. And then you sort of see that happen with Ro Roche as well. You know, they start calling him uh, the lion, right? Uh, 
I forget yeah. the, the full the young lions. The, yeah, the yep. young lions. So it's like you know the the joke is sort of like oh you know don't get too popular might find yourself on the front lines at the sand fortress. <laughs> but it's so satisfying to see Hugo get his cup up come up at the yeah. end. But I hate he, Hugo. But you know what? Where the people of Alistair alert. Or like, show us Noah. The stupid possible history where they're like, Hugo's not that bad. Like, they should not have included that one. Just Hugo's always a douche. Yeah. Because it's just I, like you. Yeah, you like you you give you give Hugo his stupid uh his rosebud, and he's just like, nah, I'm still a dick. Like that's how it should have been. <laughs> yeah, screw yeah. you. <laughs> well, I like to heist shows up at the end, and Hugo's like, oh, let's combine our forces. You know, like you don't got any forces. Your your personal guard walked out on you five minutes ago. <laughs> But I think it's also funny because when he dies, he doesn't he like he doesn't show any regret or any remorse for his actions. Instead, you know, he's like, oh, I finally see Noah. You know, I can get to you. And he likes smiling yeah. as he dies, you know. It, oh, and I like Roche is like pissed, too. He's like, oh, that guy, he just died with a smile on his face. Yeah, like you didn't even get <laughs> he was happy to die. You know, he was happy to finally go see the prophet Noah again. So it's like then you start to think it's like has this person just been so corrupt and and you know not mentally there that he believes these things are really for the right you know and it's not necessarily him being bad but then you're like no I'm not trying to rationalize Hugo as being a decent person like he's the worst yeah. well the the George Costanza line comes comes to mind in this case where it's it's not a lie if you believe it <laughs> <laughs> uh I mean, that also brings up one of my favorite characters, uh, Lieutenant General Raoul, who uh, is just all around good guy. I mean, yeah. it's he's a, funny. He's a stand up dude. Because, yeah, like in the beginning, you sort of meet, um, you know, you meet Hugo Hess and, um, oh, God, what's the name I'm thinking of? Oh, Hugo, oh, I'm an idiot. Hugo Hess and Raoul, sort of all at the same yeah. second there, you know? So you're like, and you're starting to see, like, oh, well, that guy's bad. This guy's sort of shady. And then you're wondering, like, is Raul sort of in on this as well, or does he turn, you know? And through and through, he just turns out to be the best, you know. And he's always yeah. sort of doing what's right for the people and not, you know, trying to do anything foul. So he, for me, he was one of my favorite characters, you know, outside of stock. Yeah, and he got like really hung up about the fact that his secretary saved his life. Yeah, like that was interesting to me is that there was like several times, and even in the very ending. Where he was like, oh, I, I hope she's okay. But he knew that she wasn't, but was still... Holding on. Yeah, holding on and just so glad that she had sacrificed herself for, for his benefit. And it was almost like his the thing that drove him to continue was that it's like, okay, she believed in me, so I'm I'm going to move on or keep going, you know? I like that part. Like, yeah, Raul was a, was a fun character that way. Uh, one of the one of the more important characters that we haven't discussed yet is Ott, the shaman from Celestia. Uh, I really, I She's really a fun enjoy... character to use. Yeah, she is fun. Well, and it's funny too because you don't know it at the time, but she really knows what's going on from day one. Like she knows who Stock is, really. Yeah, uh, she knows about the desertification. She knows about the ritual, but she's just just there having fun with Stock. And I like think. It's... I think finding out that she sort of knows everything makes sense because the entire time you realize she's very protective of stock, you know, and doesn't want him to leave or doesn't want him to go most, you know, whenever they're sort of separated, um, 
as the story, you know, where it's like, ah, you stay here. And she's like, no, I, you know, I can't leave stock. Like I need to stay with yeah. him. So it sort of makes more sense because she knows, I guess, what the end game theoretically would be that stock has to sacrifice himself, you know? So it's funny to see her sort of, I don't know, I guess sort of selfishly not want that to happen because she doesn't want anything bad to happen to stock. Yep. And then uh, we also have uh, Gafka, the the Gutrul. former resident. Yeah, the Gutrul, who <laughs> was cast out of Forja because he was sympathetic to humans. The Gutrils in, in general were interested because it was later in the game, there's there's a quest where you have to release uh, the Gutrils from captivity. And it's funny because Stock and Rosh were like, well, I don't understand. How did they get captured? Because the, the Gutrul are these massive beast, beast men who are, are ultra powerful. And uh, so they were like, okay, we can go rescue them. But why were they captured? And the answer was, well, I mean, they could have beat them, but it would have been too easy. So they just didn't bother. <laughs> It's like uh, they just decided to let themselves be captured because it would be it would have been too much work to fight back. I would I would have liked to see like I mean like the Guchels are really cool and maybe maybe what they did in the story was like enough for them. But I like kind of wish I knew more and got to see more about them. Like Gafka is really fun to play as. So yeah, they don't really give you much aside from you know that the Guchels and the humans really don't well. I guess it's more so that the Gutrils absolutely hate humans, you know, um, yeah. outside of a small, small percentage of them. And obviously Gafka being one that doesn't mind the humans. So that's sort of like the the background we get with the Gutrils. And, you know, in the game, you have to go and you do a quest where you get a beast mark. And that's sort of the sign of like, oh, like only like good people can first and foremost make it through the, the trial to get the beast mark. But you also need to be like a good person so it sort of gives them like the hey this this is someone that we can trust and that's sort of how they get favor with you know the gutrols coming to help stop hugo and then ultimately we find out hess you know from from doing these bad things but yeah i thought the gutrols were interesting but like you said they sort of um don't really show up until sort of the latter part of the game at least in like yeah. when you get to their their area uh forja so yeah, it would have been nice to maybe get a little bit more about that, but I also think they sort of gave enough where I didn't feel like it was completely like too uh, hollow or shallow. Was there any uh, any other characters you got um, that you particularly liked or disliked? Because um, I, I know there was. I still... like the sword dancing boy. Keel's always fun. Yeah, yeah, Keel was great. Um, he's just sort of like the the goofy little brother who who was just real gung ho to be in the army and and be doing something great for his nation and he sort of you know really idolized Roche and and Stock and that was sort of what he inspired to be you know he wanted to be that that soldier that would be able to go in there and sort of handle his business as well as protecting others and unfortunately he uh sees an early demise in his yeah. in the storyline which is a shame He's because a yeah he was sort of like the the goofy little you know comic relief sort of feel good rah rah we can do this kind of guy where in some situations it was totally uncalled for you know like it, it, we're in a real bad trouble here and you know then you had keel sort of just like we can do it guys you know like stock and, <laughs> and rosh are great they can handle this you know we're gonna be fine yeah uh selvin and diaz were interesting characters too so these were the the two the, the two Knights. guys pulling the pulling the strings in grenorg yeah 
Uh, and it was interesting. It was funny. I love their, you know, they were, they had that loyal obedience in front of the queen. And then as soon as they were at earshot, they're like, that dummy. Yeah, she <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, she was the figurehead, right? Protea was sort of, she was not of a true uh, Grand Org blood, right? She was a stepmother to Erica. Um, and yeah, they yeah. they just sort of kept her up there because she was sort of a jerk and just let her sort of take any flack or anything, whatever. You got her up there doing her thing. And then, yeah, like you said, you got Selvan and Diaz pulling the strings. Just pulling the string. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought they were interesting enough. I mean, obviously they were sort of, obviously uh, antagonists, but sort of on like that that B-tier antagonist where it's like we knew Hugo was like the real real guy you had to sort of take care of. But, you know, I thought that whole plot of like, all right, like they're letting her sort of run the show, quote, you know, or let her think she's running the show. And then you get to that sweet point of where Protea's like, all right, take care of these. And they're like, you're on your own lady. Like we're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that scene where they're standing in front of her and Sylvan walks in, kind of looks at them and I'm like, no, thanks. Just yeah. walks out. <laughs> but even Sylvan and Diaz, like they, they were portrayed as antagonists and you did fight them, but even their motivations weren't necessarily evil either. Like they were still, sort of tried it was kind of about Grenorg. like they thought they were doing the right thing by the empire in a way yeah i mean and you can even see that they're not completely nefarious when protea says set fire to the kingdom and just kill everyone you know like i don't care just burn the whole city down and they're like okay and then you know they sort of plan like all right i'm gonna start a fire over in like one little corner just go start telling everyone to get out so we can sort of limit casualties, you know, where like Protea was just, I don't give a shit at all. I'm just, you know, I'm in it for me. And you can yeah. tell they sort of had <laughs> grander ideas as far as like, they loved Grand Org, you know, like, I just don't think they wanted to see the harm necessarily come to it that like a Protea just didn't really care about. Yeah. And then it was even funny to see Protea. They like, she was very, from the beginning, just pers- Shown as someone who only cared about themselves, very selfish. But then right at the end, even she had that turn of heart at the end where she's like, well, I had a lot of time to read, so I learned about stuff, and now I'm helping people. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, okay, sure. So good. (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) It's good for you. You know, To me, it almost seemed like Hugo was the only one that didn't have a redeeming value at the end. Yeah, and like you said, I feel like he was at that point where... Yeah, when he was on his deathbed, uh, quote unquote, to uh, he just was accepted it and was like, oh, now I get it. You know, none of his actions were wrong to him at all. You know, he went out doing because isn't that actually what he says? Like you finally catch up to him and you're just like, I've done nothing wrong. And like I th- yeah. and they're like, that's the first thing you have to say to us. Like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, yeah I'm I'm. Uh, I'm doing the no Noah's will or bidding or whatever, you know, like, Ugh. Such a jerk. But it was interesting, like, in the ending, the characters were so interesting and it's such an integral part. And Stock makes it known, like, in the very end where Heist is like, I don't understand why you don't want to burn down the world. And Stock explains it to him that, well, you didn't have the, the people around you that I had. And so they, the, they really make it like, okay, this is why the world's not going to end, is because you had all of these characters that did good things and, and deserved to live sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, I'm not sure if this was said, and maybe I skipped over it. Now, 
when Heiss had both Chronicles, right? So he could use both of them, right? Like, that wasn't yeah. like there was, you could only use one. Like, you could use both. And he just chose to lament with, like, a regretful and hateful, you know, with the, the Black Chronicle. Instead of, yeah. like, you know, like I was saying before, how they sort of were in a similar situation, how they just went complete polar opposites of, you know, Heist went, I'm going to be angry and spiteful and... Uh, Stock was like, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to find these people and find reasons to sacrifice myself because it's not, you know, he didn't feel bad sacrificing himself knowing he was going to be saving all these people that touched him and were, you know, a big part of his life. Yeah, I don't think when Heist gave the White Chronicle, I don't think he thought that was what was going to happen because he kind of explained it that his ultimate goal was for Ernst to see, to come to his way of thinking. Yeah, to that that basically like it's all, it's all pointless and meaningless. Let's just avoid, avoid the cycle. Yeah, I think the White Chronicle was uh, like to him. I think it was just a tool to go back in time, to yeah, to see that cycle of everything you do, you're doing or trying to to do is is pointless. The only real ending to this is everyone dying, like the end, the desertification. Yeah, uh, and it, so it's a surprise to Heist at at the end that it's like, well, I don't understand. Like how, how can you see what I've seen and not, not feel the way I feel? But, and I think that's all part of the, where, uh, heist, like, I really think he saw Ernst as, as a son figure because they even say at the, and I don't know if it was in the perf, the, which ending it was in, but heist wasn't like leaving, <laughs> like in the, after he was kind of beaten where, and, and stock even points out that like, you're still holding out hope. Like, you're not leaving because you're holding out hope that I'll still turn to your way of thinking, even even though it's obvious I'm not. So, so I mean, Heiss's connection to the world was all all just stock, where stock had this big number of people. And that's sort of the beauty of, like, he finally realizes, like, oh, I'll sacrifice myself for the one thing that is important to me, you know, for stock. Yeah, and, and he him seeing that, the world was important to to stock. So it's like, okay, well, if if the world is this important to him and he's important to me, then I guess it's worth sacrificing myself. Which, in the original game, didn't really solve the problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it. like it was still, everything <laughs> it, sucks. But yeah, like, It was still going to end one day. Yeah, but I guess, I mean, I don't know if they go into how often this uh, ritual had to happen. Like, Oh, if you do a ritual here, you're good for a hundred years or fifty, you know, however many years. But it would still give Stock presumably, you know, his full life or close to his full life before. Would it? I, I mean, if I you think of... that that Ernst was the previous sacrifice, and that I don't think we're given an exact amount of time, but it couldn't have been that long. Yeah, it I... seemed like each generation somebody had to go. Yeah, I guess that's, that's true. how I took that's it. That's what like I mean, like each generation is what I kind of thought initially too but then the whole ernst being the sacrifice like and wasn't heist was meant to be the sacrifice yeah i think what the thing though to that made it seem that it was every generation to me was so heist was the sacrifice or supposed to be and and he took off and so they had to go to the kid because there was no other option so it almost seemed like to me that they didn't want to sacrifice like younger people but I also okay, okay. But then, right. it's... but even still, but even still, the end of the—I mean, I guess the end of the original endings. 
are there's a sacrifice that happens, but if it's once a generation, don't those sacrifices not need that? I'm I don't know. Well, it's hard to say too because Heist they made a point of saying that Heist wasn't shouldn't have been as old as he was, but he but he Traveled was so because much. he was using the Black Chronicle so much. Uh, okay. But I wonder if now had Heist gone through with the sacrifice and the ritual, right? Now maybe that would have meant that Erica and Ernst would not have had to sacrifice themselves because maybe it did jump a generation, and the only reason it was, you know generation and then the next generation is because heist never fulfilled his duty of actually doing the ritual maybe i yeah i'm i don't think they really touch on that it would be interesting to see um but yeah i, I wasn't sure because yeah if presu- even if it did just one generation that would still give stock generally most of his life you know to sort of see through um until yeah. the next sacrifice or well, well the other part of it too was that there were things were happening that were speeding it up. Like, yeah. Alice still using, creating a weapon using the mana, like yep. the, the Thaumatech. And you had Heist yeah. sort of making things happen in certain ways to sort of make it happen quicker as well, right? With the being able to travel and sort of alter history how he pleases. Yeah, and he would have certainly been pushing that, the the Thaumatech with Fennel there. Yep. Uh, and he would have known that that was speeding up the desertification. With how how uh, how Heist got older because of using the Black Chronicle, does that mean that like stock should be eighty by the end of the mo- by the end of the game? Yeah, <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, he stocked in age one bit, man. Yeah. Heist must have really been traveling quite yeah. a bit. <laughs> but he 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 was they they implied that there was a lot of setup though too, because the mercenary group that Rainy and Marco was with. Yeah, that was Heist's uh, bidding. Heist, yeah, Heist yeah. had had. Tried to figure out, and he made it sound like he had tried like many times to to come up with ways to take out the mercenary group without, but only leaving Rainy and Marco. <laughs> so, yeah. so he had implied it was like, oh man, it was so hard. Like I had to do it like fifteen times, and I finally got the ring. I ruined you know, your life like fifteen times yeah. before this time. <laughs> yeah. I just kept on seeing them die, and there were a couple times where I figured it out, but I just wanted to see him die again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe Heist is a bad guy after all, real bad guy. <laughs> But uh, heist, heist is just Bill Murray and Groundhog's Day. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking he's just Joker trying from... to get with Andy McDowell. That's yeah. that's really his this whole goal. I was thinking life. more Joker from Dark Knight. Where he's just like <laughs> just burn it all. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's funny to me when I think of Radiant Historia as a whole. I um, it's definitely more s- character and story driven. Like I think that is where the game really shines. Um, like the battle system is fine, and I had fun with it. But, you know, ultimately, I think it's a little shallow. But, you know, the the writing is great. The characters and a lot of their development, you know, especially like we sort of said before with stock. It's just I think that's really where the game shines is just a really interesting story with some really great characters. Yeah, and I think I think there are I mean, there are definitely, you know, RPG tropes in this game. But I think I think the story kind of kind of stands tall. Like, I don't think there's too many games out there that are like this, specifically with how they develop the characters. Because I think the characters are very nuanced, even in some of their simplicity. Yeah, well, I was just going to agree. Like, uh, some of my favorite media is is just so, not so much the, the story, but the inter- like the story within the characters. Just how they interact and, and, and how you can see them grow from one thing to something else. And, and uh, yeah, like I said, I think 
Radiant Historia did a, a great job of having the chemistry with the characters and like no characters really seemed wasteful. Like each one had a purpose. They were all interesting to me. Yeah, there are no real throwaway characters that you're just like, eh, you know, like I could live without them, you know. They all sort of had something that piqued your interest, uh, whether it was throughout the entire game or for at least, you know, portions of the game. Yeah, it wasn't like, oh, here's Jim. I'm, maybe I'll go <laughs> use the washroom, uh, <laughs> you know, while he talks and I'll come back and maybe he'll be done. Old Jimmy? They're, old Jimmy. Good old Jimmy. I think my... Coming away uh, beating Radiant Historia for the second time, the thing that I'm left with is I really want to see what Harada's next game is um, because that dude is spinning gold. Like, Radiant Historia, excellent. Tokyo Mirage Sessions, excellent. Like, let's 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 see, dude. Go, go make another game. Give us something Maybe, nice uh, and juicy for the Switch. Yeah. Yeah, do a Radiant Historia 2, uh, do another Tokyo Mirage Sessions, do something completely new. Either way, I'm on board. Yeah, well, and he was do he was part of the Shin, Shin Megami Tensei before that, too, so. Mm. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe he's going to work on Shin Megami Tensei 5. Um, that could be the case. Oh, please, please. I mean, he, <laughs> whether he's doing it or not, I'm stoked for that game. Oh, but, like, it's, that game's in the case so mean, much ass. I, I mean, he just seems like a, a, a person with like fresh good ideas that yeah i mean the two games he's directed are fantastic top tier and, yeah. and very much standalone from similar games well i think he's a good example of i i know like how many people play a video game and just skip the credits and never think about who made it and to me it's like he he's a great example of you should really know who's making this because you probably don't want to miss his next game yeah for sure Awesome. Uh, did anybody, any other any other final thoughts uh, before we wrap up? I think I'm all good. Yeah, I think I said my piece. Reading history is a great game. Check it out. Yep, definitely a reason to dust off the 3DS. Um, as we said before, there's some other games coming this year that are going to be worth playing, but definitely if you missed it on DS and you're looking for a really great JRPG with uh, a fantastic cast of characters and a, a great story, this is uh, definitely one you don't want to miss. Yeah, and I want to thank Neil for talking us into doing it because I, I had never heard of it prior to this, and it was coming out, and you know, it was like, hey, you dudes want to want to play the game together? And we're like, RPG, why not? Yay. It was definitely worth it, definitely worth playing. So I just want to thank everyone uh, who made it to the end of this one. <laughs> well, we're happy that you listened to the pod. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'd love to continue producing discussions about your favorite RPGs. If you have any requests, track us down on Twitter. We have our own Twitter handle, the Thirsty Mage. It's just at the Thirsty Mage. So send us a message. Uh, let us know if you like the if you like the program. If there's anything you'd like to see different, if there's any games you'd like us to talk about, be happy to hear from you. If you don't have Twitter for some strange reason, <laughs> feel free to send me an email at David L at NintendoWorldReport.com. And if you did like the the podcast. Please feel free to let your, let every, everyone know what you thought. We we survived through word or both, so we'd love to hear what you thought of it, and uh, if you can spread the word, that would be great. Uh, I'd like to thank our guests, Casey Gibson. No, thank you very much. It's uh, been a pleasure talking about another fun RPG with you. Yeah, and thanks again to uh, Neil Ronahan. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. I hope to uh, do more of these drinking and RPG things. Yeah. Well, there's nothing better than drinking beer and talking video games, is there?
Yep, I, I, I can I can think of a few, but it's like a top ten. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, again, thanks for everyone to listen, and uh, we hope to see you again at the Thirsty Mage. <laughs>